Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. It is God's word written to me. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. So I receive it as truth for my life today and open my heart to hear God speak a word, reveal Jesus to me, and fill me with the Holy Spirit so that my life will be changed forever. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I've got questions. Come on, say that with me. I've got questions. That's the series that we started last week. This is week number two. And if we're being honest, we've all got questions. We've got questions about God. We've got questions about faith. We've got questions about culture and what's going on in our world. We've got questions about life. Come on, can I say it? We've got questions about marriage. We've got questions about living together outside of marriage. We've got questions about sex. We've got questions about gender identity. We've got questions about LGBTQ+. We've got questions about politics. Come on, anybody got questions about politics? We've got questions about money. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And God wants for His people to be confident in coming to Him with the toughest questions in life. Because we believe that He has the answers that we need. And I shared with us last week that the reality is that we're living in a time where it seems like there are more and more people with more and more questions. And for some of our um, golden age year people in the house, some of these questions, if we're being honest, like Barbara and Joan, right? Some of these questions we didn't even have to ask 20 years ago. These questions weren't even on the table, right? And so we're talking about the importance of questions and and how we ask our questions and, and where to find the answers to our questions. And if we can learn how to do that, God will enable us to live mighty, victorious Christian lives that are stable, that are grounded in the midst of a very unstable, shaky world and culture that we live in. And if you remember, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. That's kind of our theme verse. Paul's writing to his younger son in the faith, Timothy, and Timothy's a pastor. And the whole idea behind 1 Timothy is Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to make sure that you're aware that as time progresses, that there's going to be people in the church that are going to give in to false teachings from God's Word. And they're going to apostatize. They're going to fall away. And so I want you to know, Timothy, that's what's coming. So you do your due diligence as a good pastor and you stay in the Word. You stay full of the Word. You, you, you teach the Word. You preach the Word. You consume the Word for yourself and for your congregation. Look at what he says. Paul says, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says, he explicitly says, he pointedly says 
that in latter times, those are the last days. Those are the times between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second and final coming. When He comes and He sets up His millennial reign and He brings judgment, He separates the wheat and the tares, those that are His and those that aren't. He says in latter times, that's here, that's now, that's where we're living today. Some, not all, some will depart from the faith, from the faith. Not just believing something, when he says from the faith, he means from Christianity. He means from the essential teachings that make one a Christian. Some of these Christians are going to fall away. They're going to depart from the faith. Why? Because they gave heed They paid attention to, they leaned into, they got sucked into deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There are demonic spirits roaming in the unseen atmosphere, in this earthly atmosphere. And their whole objective is to deceive people and to deceive God's people. And the thing about deception I shared last week is a lot of times I don't even know if I'm being deceived because it looks like the truth. It sounds like the truth. It's, it's sort of true. But upon closer examination, we get really down to brass tacks. It's, it's a lie. But he won't show you an outright lie. He'll just show you something a little tricky, right? So there's these deceiving spirits. And listen to what it says. And doctrines. Doctrines are teachings. Teachings in the church that come from demons. Pastor Robert. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because the devil's real. And he's looking for leaders in churches and he's looking for Christians to bring these twisted doctrines of demons and get them infiltrated in the church and then in our culture and our society. Like there are some churches that preach um, that you have to work your way to heaven. Legalism. That's heresy. It's something that's false. There are some churches, I'm just, I'm, I'm getting extreme, okay? There are some churches that embrace and teach it's okay for two men to get married. There are churches today that are preaching and teaching that and ordaining pastors that are gay. I love everybody, so does God. But we have a standard. It's called the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. How about you? So we got all kinds of doctrines of teachings that are being infiltrated. And Paul's saying, you got to be careful because some people are going to buy into it. And they're going to fall away from the faith. Now, if we want to stand strong in our culture in the middle of all this craziness that's going on. And we don't want to fall away from our faith. We said last week that the starting place for all of our questions is to start with the question. And here's the question. What does the Bible say? Come on, ask it with me. What does the Bible say? Now, I want to just kind of prep us a little bit. This is another teaching where I don't want to be in a hurry. This is not a 30-minute teaching. I'm not going to keep you for a long time, but I don't want to be, my objective is not to hurry through this. My objective is to be accurate and to be thorough and to feed you. So if you're looking to get out at 11 or 11.10, 
I'm not going to be done by then. I'm not going to hold you. There's no locks on the doors. You can go out, but you're going to miss some good stuff. Amen. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Come on, tell him, don't miss it. Don't miss it, David. Don't miss it, Yolanda and Joni. Grace to you, honey. My wife is feeling better little by little each week, each day. Her eyes getting better from her surgery that she had. She sends her love. The title of today's message, you ready? Can I really trust the Bible? Because if we want to ask the question, what does the Bible say? We have to be confident that we can really trust the Bible. My subtitle is Five Reasons We Can Trust the Bible. There are more. We're going to cover five today. This is important because as Christians, we need to be able to know why we trust the Bible and how to answer the question when we're asked. Why do you trust the Bible? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says this. Catch this. He says, But sanctify, that means set apart, the Lord God in your hearts. Listen to this. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Not fear like I'm afraid, but fear like I'm in reverential awe of God with gentleness and meekness, I want to give a defense to everyone asks me for a reason of the hope that I have in God and Jesus and why I trust the Bible. Notice the word defense. You see the word defense? The word defense in the Greek is the word apologia. A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. And apologia is defined as a verbal defense, a reasoned statement, or a reasonable argument. Not an argument where like you're mad and you're mean and you're trying to force it. No, no, no. You're reasonably defending why you believe what you believe. We get the word apologetics or apologist. An apologist is someone who's been trained and specializes in apologetics. But all of us, to a certain degree, can be apologists and have some understanding in apologetics. Apologetics is the religious discipline, or we could say, in our context, the Christian discipline of defending religious doctrines, of defending what we say we believe we're being taught from the Scriptures. Through what? Through systematic argumentation and discourse. Through systematically learning about what the Scriptures say, So that we can communicate that to people to defend what we say we believe. That's apologia. That's defense. That's apologetics. Now, we got to understand, it's really not sufficient to say, I trust the Bible because it works for me. Or, I trust the Bible because I was raised to trust the Bible. Well, listen, there are people that are raised... In Buddhism. And we know according to the scripture. That that's not the way. There are people that are raised. In a a cult. But we know according to the scripture. That's not the way. There are people that have tried all kinds of stuff. That works for them. But it's not enough to just say it works for me. Why do you trust 
in the Scriptures, what is your biblical, reasoned response? Now think about how valuable that can be to us if we can learn how to intelligently and spiritually defend systematically from the Bible itself why we trust and why we believe in the Bible. Amen. Wouldn't that be good? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. I'm not going to take time to talk about every single verse. I'll bring about as much light to it as we need to for this study. But after we read through 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, I'm going to back up and we're going to unpack it a little bit. And I'm going to show you from this portion of Scripture why we can trust, confidently lean on, put all of our weight, put all of our faith in God's Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. Amen. Now, Peter is writing, and his primary objective in writing this, 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, is, again, he's warning against false teaching. He's warning against heresy. The word heresy means to choose. So there are people in the Christian faith that choose this and choose that and choose this, but it's not in alignment with the core Christian fundamental of Scripture. They're adding to it, and it's heresy. It's a choice that you've made that's extra biblical. It's outside of the fundamental Christian faith, and that takes people in error. Peter's very concerned about that. He's an apostle. He was one of the ones that met with Jesus and knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and did ministry with Jesus. He's one of the ones that Jesus charged to, to spread the gospel that came from Jesus. So he's very concerned about the church. And he writes here, starting in verse 16, he says, I want you to know, we did not, we, meaning Peter and the other apostles, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So he's saying, listen, I want you to know that we didn't follow some made-up myths, some half-truths, some things that were circulating but really weren't true, these, these cleverly made-up human ideas. When we talk to you about the power of Jesus, the anointing of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the preaching, when we shared all of that, it wasn't this cunningly devised, made-up story. No. When we talk to you about the return of the Lord Jesus and His second coming and, and what He's going to do and He's going to set up His millennium, when we, no, 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 we weren't making up some stories. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, of His glory, of His awesomeness. We saw Him face to face. We were with Him. Verse 17. For He, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is the voice. This is my beloved Son in whom... I am well pleased, Peter says. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's describing what is commonly known as the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Peter, James, and John were asked by Jesus to go up on this mountain. And he had this transfiguration. And Jesus, they got to see Jesus in his glory and his splendor. 
before he came to the earth, like in his deity, they saw it. I can't tell you exactly how that all happened. It was a nat- supernatural, miraculous thing. He, he was glowing with his radiance. They saw that. And not only that, but they heard God audibly. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 19, he goes on and he says, And so we have this prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So he's saying, we have the prophetic word, prophetic meaning things that were said, things that were spoken by prophets in the Old Testament, things that were written by prophets in the Old Testament, foretelling the coming of the Messiah and Jesus Peter is saying, when we had this experience, we now have those prophetic words, those prophecies, those prophetic writings and those scriptures. We have it confirmed. It's being confirmed. We're actually seeing it right before our very eyes. And then he says, by the way, it will be to your benefit if you pay attention to this prophetic word confirmed as a light that shines in a darkness. God's prophetic word is a light in the middle of this dark culture and this dark world that we're living in. It will be beneficial to you and I if we lay hold of the light of Jesus and His prophetic word in the middle of this darkness. And then he says, To when? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The day dawns is when Jesus comes and He returns for His church. Jesus is called in the book of Revelation the morning star. And he brings this complete light when everything's done. This is how he's speaking here. Verse 20. Knowing this first, Peter says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It wasn't just some person who decided, This is what I'm going to say. This is how I feel led to say. This is what I'm going to write. No, no, no. For prophecy, words of God, from God, never came by the will of man... But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit moved them along by His power and His inspiration from God, these prophets spoke and they penned the Scriptures. It wasn't just self-willed. It was the will of God that moved them in the Spirit. And this is how we have the Scriptures. So here's the question. How can I know, Pastor Robert, that I can trust the Bible? Okay, I'm going to just kind of read a paragraph, and then we're going to break it down. Here it is. It's on your handout. I know I can really trust the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed their writings are divine and not of human origin. Somebody say, Amen. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but let's unpack it a little bit. Here's reason number one that we can really trust the Bible. And it's a fill-in-the-blank on your handout if you want it. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Come on, say it with me, church. 
The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Where do you get that from, Pastor Robert? Look again at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We're going to stay in this portion of Scripture. The front half. Peter says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables, made up man's stories, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord. They weren't made up clever stories. They weren't, you know, just uh, expanded, devised fables or half-truths or myths. No, he says, on the contrary, what we shared with you was reliable, I'm going to put it this way, historical facts. The apostle, he is solemnly declaring that the testimony of the apostles and the testimony that he's giving that they are recorded, uh, and they are recorded even though they had to endure torture and give up their lives for these testimonies. And what we have to realize is that we know that these aren't myths or have truths, and we can have confidence that they're reliable historical documents because a person who was making up a story or lying, if his life was threatened, Wouldn't he just change his story? Doesn't it make sense that he would change his story? Would you die for something if it wasn't true? No, these are reliable documents that we're looking at. Notice how Luke, the physician, speaks to the documentation of these historical, reliable documents. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and it's on your handout. Luke says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Listen to this. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Again, Luke is testifying that what he's writing, he investigated everything from the beginning. He was very thorough. He was very accurate. He wanted to make sure what he was writing was historically accurate and that it was without error under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God. We got to understand that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Just so that we're aware, the Bible is 66 books, 24 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It's written originally in three different languages, in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Aramaic. There are over 23,000 archaeological digs that corroborate with the Bible's accuracy. By the way, not one of those disproves the Bible's accuracy. There are many historical references in Scripture that are not found anywhere else, only later to be proven true through archaeological discovery. The Bible includes specific names, specific places, and specific people that are verifiable. The Bible's written by 40 different authors spanning three continents 
and over 1,500 years, and it all has the same unified theme. God's love for humanity offering salvation through Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? That's miraculous even of itself. Now, it's very rational and it's very logical to trust and believe that the Bible is true and that it's reliable and that it's a reliable collection of historical documents. As a matter of fact, as we're speaking about historical discoveries and archaeological discoveries that corroborate the truth of the scriptures, I came across a video clip. Before we watch it, I just want to set it up just for a minute. It's three minutes long. But there was a discovery made in 2004 that points back to the Bible and the Bible times when Jesus walked and lived and stories from the Bible. I want us to watch it. Let's pay attention as it unfolds, and then I'll come back up and continue. Zev, here we are, number three, and this one is particularly exciting. Where are we right now? In order to appreciate where we are, we have to start off with these mysterious metallic green doors that lead to nowhere. If you go back about a decade ago, 2004, there was a road. Those doors opened out, it was a driveway, and there was a road right above our heads. 2004, beneath the road, there's a sewage pipe. The sewage pipe explodes. And now what you have is a big mess. So the Jerusalem municipality has to come and send in construction crews to repair this sewage pipe over here. And Jerusalem is not just any municipality. So when you send in construction crews, it's a very special place. And when you send in construction crews to repair a sewage pipe, you also have to send in an archaeologist because this is Jerusalem and you never know what is going to turn up. So they're fixing the sewage pipe. There's an archaeologist by the name of Eli Shukrun. Who's here? One of the top archaeologists. One of the top archaeologists. Some of the biggest discoveries in Jerusalem in the city of David have been made by Eli Shukrun. He hears the bulldozers as they're repairing the sewage pipe. They're scraping up against something. It just doesn't sound right. He says, stop what you're doing. Clears everybody out. And they see that when they clear everyone out, that they had uncovered these ancient steps. 2,000 years old, right over here. Uh, From the second temple period, the time of Jesus. Exactly. And you have over here these steps, and they say there's only one other place in all of Israel where you have steps like these, four steps flat, four steps flat. Those are the steps leading up to the southern ascent of the Temple Mount. And they say there must be a connection between these two sets of stairs, and that the stairs that we're looking at right over here must be the steps leading down to the ancient pool of Siloam. What was the Pool of Siloam? Why is it so important? So the Bible tells us there are three times during the year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, the three pilgrimage festivals, where all of Israel would have to go up to the temple on pilgrimage. Now, before you can go up to the temple, you have to purify yourself, immerse yourself in a ritual bath, a mikvah. The Pool of Siloam was the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Big. Why so big? Well, Josephus, the historian, tells us that 2,000 years ago, up to one million pilgrims would go on pilgrimage on these festivals. This pool behind us here, most of it is yet to be excavated, but the pool was enormous to accommodate the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who would have to go in purity from here all the way up to the Temple Mount. Where we're standing here right now, to go to the Temple Mount is 600 meters, about 2,000 feet uphill. The 
terminology in Hebrew, aliyah l'regel, to lift your feet and go up, is a physical description of the pilgrimage experience from 2,000 years ago. You must be cleansed before going up the God's holy mountain. And you notice that this place 2,000 years ago, gosh, it was bustling, it was alive. And it's coming alive once again here at the City of David in Jerusalem. We're so close now. This was number three. Now on our way to number two, which has a very serious connection to the Pool of Siloam. Let's go. You're going to show us. Wasn't that awesome? 2004 that was discovered from the scripture, John chapter 9. Jesus answered and said, "Uh, uh, uh, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So the man went and he washed and he received his sight. That was the actual spot, the actual pool where the man went and he washed. And it's been discovered in 2004. So I want for us to be absolutely 100% confident that our scriptures, the Bible that we hold, is a reliable collection of historical documents. If you're taking notes, here's your second reason. Number two, the Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Come on, say it with me. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Look at 2 Peter 1.16 again. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And we have to keep in mind that eyewitness evidence points to the fact that if there are many eyewitnesses telling the exact same story, it is most likely true. There were many eyewitnesses to biblical events who would have disputed or argued against the testimony of Scripture if it was not true. Notice the book of First John. The letter, not John the Gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. I want to show us something from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. John the Apostle, he was with Jesus. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, Concerning the word of life. The word, word is capitalized in most Bibles. And it's referring to Jesus Christ, the living word. John calls him the word of God. Right? Jesus is the fullest expression of God the Father. He was the living word. He goes on in verse 2 and he says this. The life, that's the life of God in Jesus, notice, was manifested. The word manifested in the New King James means it came into view. It came into sight. I was able to see it. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We saw it. Talking about Jesus. We saw Him. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God the Father. This is important because we need to be confident 
that the Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It wasn't just by somebody who was out of touch. No, these, these apostles saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They handled Jesus. They met with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. These are the men that God used to write the Holy Scriptures. Think about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul highlights the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Then, after Jesus was resurrected, Jesus appeared to Peter. Then, Jesus appeared to all of the disciples. Then, the Bible says that Jesus appeared at once to over 500 people. Then Paul said, listen, this is what Paul said, most of whom remain until now. Paul said that. What does that mean? That means when 1 Corinthians was written, there were over 300 people at least who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ Jesus who were still alive when Paul was writing under the unction of the Holy Spirit the book of 1 Corinthians. So there were eyewitnesses who saw all of that stuff. And the eyewitnesses are the ones God used to pin the Holy Scripture. So the Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And we're getting all of this from Second Peter. What Peter was showing with us in the text. Here's the third reason. Number three. If you're with me so far, say amen. Okay, number three. The Bible records supernatural events. The Bible records supernatural events. Look at 2 Peter again, 1.17 and 18. Peter says, For he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from him or came to him from the excellent glory. Here's what God said again. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Again, Jesus' transfiguration, which is one of the most unique and profound supernatural events in all of the Bible. Peter, James, and John were allowed to see Jesus transfigured Not only that, but the Bible tells us they also saw Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus. They saw him on this transfiguration experience. And he kind of, Jesus went from a normal man into his true and eternal appearance as the Son of God right before their eyes. Keep in mind, the whole Bible is full of supernatural events, meaning Things that no one can humanly do in and through their own efforts. Think about it. Hearing the actual voice of Almighty God and seeing Moses and Elijah and seeing Jesus transfigured into this bright light, into His deity, that's a supernatural event. All of the healings and all of the miracles that Jesus performed, these apostles saw that and experienced that. Those were all supernatural events. Think about this. Jesus Christ crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected and ascended. The Bible says they saw him ascend to heaven. These are all supernatural events. So we can be confident. We can trust the scriptures 
Because the Bible records supernatural events, things that no human can do in and through their own efforts. Here's number four. We're talking about reasons why we can really trust the Bible. The Bible is the fulfillment of specific prophecies. Come on, say it with me. The Bible is the fulfillment of specific prophecies. What's a prophecy? A prophecy is something that men and women of God spoke and God spoke through them about something that would happen later in the future that wasn't happening when they spoke it. Prophecy meaning foretelling. That's what the word means. So it's full of specific prophecies. 2 Peter 1.19 Peter said, And so we have this prophetic word confirmed. When they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, everything that was spoken pointing to the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, was confirmed right before their very eyes. There are many specific prophecies that are recorded in Scripture that have verifiably taken place, and in some cases, hundreds and hundreds of years after they were recorded. And the probability of these prophecies coming true is humanly impossible, leading us to the only remaining conclusion that the Bible is the true inspired Word of God. When you look at scholars, for example, one Bible scholar by the name of J. Barton Payne, he has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah, Jesus, the Anointed One. Another one by the name of Alfred Edersheim, he found 456 Old Testament verses to the Messiah or His times. So conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in His earthly ministry. Look at Psalm 22 with me for just a second. I think it's on your sheet. Psalm 22, the psalmist, David, he writes these words in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come on, just shout it out. Does anybody know who said that? Shout it out. Jesus said that. When did he say it? When he was on the cross. Those are the words of Jesus. But I think it's interesting that we know why would Jesus refer to those words written approximately a thousand years before his time before crucifixion was ever even invented. That's powerful just to think about. Not only that, but I didn't put it on your sheet. If I go to Psalm 22, verses 16 and 18 say this. Listen, see if you recognize it. They pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, 16 and 18. Whose clothing did they cast lots for? Anybody know? Jesus' clothing, right? Whose side and feet were pierced? Anybody know? Jesus' side. 
But this is penned way before the Romans invented crucifixion. And most scholars would say, rightly, when David penned this, crucifixion wasn't even around. But here we have this prophetic scripture being written in Psalm 22. And these are the exact words that Jesus speaks from the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an amazing fulfillment of a specific prophecy about Jesus. And he declares it while he's hanging on the cross for your sins and for mine. Last but not least, here's the fifth reason I want to give us today. Reasons why we can really trust the Bible. Here it is. The Bible is a book of divine writings. Divine meaning not human. Divine meaning from God. Divine writings. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. We're staying in that text. Knowing this, first, that no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture, this is Scripture, is of any private interpretation. Again, it wasn't something that some man just made up in and through his own will, in and through his own thinking. Uh-uh. Didn't come from there. Verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the authors of the Bible claim it is God speaking directly to and through them. They wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as God spoke to them and gave them the utterance, the words to say, they wrote them. Just because, listen, just because a man penned the words does not make those words unreliable. Amen? Aren't there a lot of textbooks in all of the schools and all of the colleges, some of you all have attended, that were penned by men? Yet they're used all the time as reliable sources for education and for learning and for degrees and so on and so forth. So some argument might say, well, the Bible was written by men. Well, no. Yeah, uh, the Bible was written by men, but the men were under the inspiration and the unction and the moving of the very Spirit of God. So we could say that these writings are divine in origin. They're not human. They come from God. And just because a man was used, that doesn't mean that they're unreliable sources for theology and everything concerning our relationship with God. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, I think it's on your handout. It says this. Let's say it together. Do you have it on your handout? Let's say it together. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, verse 17 is not up there, but I think verse 17 says something to the point of, so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped and complete for every good work. In other words, it's the divine writings of God, it's the scriptures of God that God uses in your life and in my life 
And he teaches us about our relationship with God. It's profitable for doctrine, for teaching about our relationship with God. Not only is it profitable for doctrine and teaching about our relationship with God. Look at this. It says that it's profitable for reproof. Some other translation might say, showing you where you're in sin, or showing you where I'm misstepped, or showing you where you're outside of the lines, or showing you where you're out of bounds. Let me put it this way, showing you where you're out of alignment. Some people, some people, I believe, some people that are listening to me right now are going to catch this later. The reason we're not experiencing all that God has for us is because we're out of alignment with God. That's why. Any parent who loves his child, even though he wants to give him more, more freedom, more blessings, more opportunities, more leash, more leeway, any parent who wants to do that in his child, he's going to hold back in those reins a little bit when he sees that his child is out of alignment With Father. Isn't that right, Walter? Why? Because God doesn't love you? No, 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 no. Because God loves you. And because God cares about you. This is important. Because if we can allow the Word, the divine Word of God, to show me reproof. Man, Robert, you're out of alignment right there. Thank God. That's His grace. And what's so good about that, He doesn't leave us there. It says, for correction. Now he'll graciously and lovingly by the word and the spirit and sometimes the body of Christ. He'll get us back on track. Course correction. Do a U-turn. Amen. Anybody listen to GPS? When you pass your location, do a U-turn. God will give you opportunities to do a U-turn. But friend, if, 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 if you can't trust this, and you're not buying into it, and you're not reading it, the reproof from the Word and the Spirit won't, won't be on your life. And you'll just keep living any way you think out of alignment. This is grace. He corrects us, and then it says this, the Word is for instruction in righteousness. Righteousness means right living with God. It instructs us. All of these questions that we have, what about marriage? What about finances? What about life? What about living together? Let me, let me graciously say this too. I just feel like some people need to hear this. There are a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians. Like half of the population, I think. Half of the population of Christians, statistically. 50% of Christians, statistically. Now hear me, I'm being gracious. They're out of alignment because they're living together. Outside of holy matrimony. They're not married. Now, if you've been there and you're married now, thank God for His grace and He showed us some things that we're living right. Now you're back in alignment. God's best is for you. But if you're a Christian and you're questioning, should we keep living together even though we're Christians? God's Word will say no. Every time. But if you're asking the culture, and you're asking Oprah, or you're asking Dr. Phil, or you're asking some other secular media mongol who's giving into this applied postmodern culture, 
where absolute truth has to be annihilated from our culture, and you're going to buy into that. And that's why we keep pointing you back to the Word. Because when you get married in holy matrimony, and you have a marriage license from the state that you live in, now it's legal, amen. Pastor Robert, what do you mean? I've met some people that say they're Christians, and some pastor did a ceremony for them, but they didn't have all the legal things in order. One's from another country. He's not legal yet. They can't drive. They can't work. They can't get a check. They can't pay income tax. They, they're not recognized as a legal citizen. And they do the ceremony. Ta, 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 ta. We're married. Well, gosh. The Bible says that we're supposed to abide to the laws of the land that we're living in. God put those laws there. So wherever we're at, we got to do that. Amen. Does that make sense? I don't mean to harp on this. It's just that there's a lot of Christians that are living like this. And friend, the devil's robbing people of God from the maximum blessing because they're short-circuiting the holy matrimony process. This is important. Now, if two people live together and they're not, you know, and they're just friends, well, I guess that's okay. But, but I will say this. You have to be careful even that because the Bible says that that could appear to others as sin. Because if you say you're a Christian, most people would assume if you're living with someone of the opposite sex that you're, right? Most people would assume that. That's just, that's just life. So just be very careful. Don't be deceived. Amen. Come on. Did anybody get anything from the Word today? Come on. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we could confidently rely on, lean on, trust in the divine word of God. And Father, I just declare your grace and your love and your help over every single person under the sound of my voice. None of us is perfect, starting with myself, but your word and your Holy Spirit graciously continues to guide us and lead us and transform us and shape us and mold us. And we say, Holy Spirit, we welcome you and we yield to you. Help us to walk in God's ways. Help us to take our questions to God. Help us to search the scriptures for the answers that we need so that we can live strong, stable, victorious lives in a shaky, dark culture. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.